perhaps in honor of our resident church historian, Doug Johnson, who is not with us, anyone recognize these words? Quote, I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Anybody know who said that? You're right. A student over there, the rest of you who knew that. Martin Luther. Now, he was being ordered by the church to recant. What was he supposed to recant of? His 95 Theses, which essentially was everything that he taught, summed up in a 95 Thesis nutshell, which probably wasn't too short. He had confronted the church's teaching, as most of us are familiar with, on salvation being grace plus works, and it was based upon his reading and understanding of the book of Romans. Romans was his favorite New Testament book. He wrote this of Romans. He said, this letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. Do you know Luther encouraged followers to memorize the book of Romans? The entire book of Romans? <laughs> you youngsters, you can do that. Man. But he, uh, he loved Romans. We also know that during... The days of the Reformation, great, great challenges, great threats, uh, resulted in some pretty significant discouragement and, and even times of, of despair, almost borderline depression for Luther. And in those dark days, he would often turn to his dear friend, Philip Melanchthon, and say, Come, Philip, let us sing the Psalms. Luther loved the Psalms. One commentator says this, While Romans formulated Luther's doctrinal convictions about the purity of the true gospel, Psalms gave him the courage to proclaim these truths fearlessly. His personal study of the Psalms instilled within him such a high view of God that he developed a devil-defying boldness to stand alone against the world for the truth of the gospel of God's grace. The Psalms gave Luther an unconquerable spirit, an indomitable will to trust God no matter what happened to him. His favorite hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Taken from Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Well, as of last Thursday, it's officially summer. And it just seems to me that we ought to spend our summer looking at psalms. I'm thinking of it as summer in the psalms. That's kind of a fun ring to it. I can tell you're very impressed with my creativity. <laughs> kind of a nice ring. So we want to spend a uh, summer in the psalms looking at this ancient book of worship for the people of Israel. I'm, I'm always struck by the different kinds of, of psalms and and the plethora of human emotion that is contained in the Psalms. Oftentimes, the psalmist, and, and that is very often David, plums the depths of human emotion. And the fact that those feelings are recorded in Scripture 
says something, I think, about God's willingness to, to both hear and understand those emotions. I think that that is what Luther found. That is what many of us have found as we have, have turned to the Psalms for, for comfort, for encouragement, for strength. And, and my prayer is that the richness of what we learn from our Sundays this summer in the Psalms will, will of course, stick with us, go beyond summer, and, and, and be something that, that goes with us on a daily basis, encouraging us to live by an expression that was coined by many of the Reformers, Coram Deo, living before the face of God, life before the face of God. That is being aware of the truth that, that all of our daily life is lived out in front of God. He sees it. He hears it. He knows it. Every moment of every day, he is present in every situation you face. That's worth thinking about for a moment. Everywhere I go, everywhere you go, God is. Every thought you have, God is there. Every emotion that you feel, <clears throat> God is there. Every circumstance, joyful or sorrow-filled, God is present. And so that encourages us to recognize his presence and to live in response to that, that is Coram Deo, living every day for his glory and his honor. I would put it in language like this, and we have used this language many times. <clears throat> we were created, brothers and sisters, we were created to worship God, created by him and for him, and to live in that relationship, which is what I often refer to as a relationship of just unimaginable intimacy. Gosh, the songs that we sang this morning, thank you, praise team. You just, you pointed us in that direction. You reminded us of, of the incredible love of God for lost and broken people. Amazing. We, we don't experience love like that in the human realm until our hearts encounter him. That is what we were created for. And the Psalms, I think, remind us of that in many ways. Worship of God, intimacy with him as his people. We could layer onto that as his children. That's, that's New Testament language. Not language that the Old Testament folks had, but, but we get to add to that. You know, I fear that sometimes we, we hear the word worship and we think of what we do here on Sunday mornings rather exclusively. And it's not as if we, we mean to do that, but, but we call this a service of worship. We come on Sundays to worship together. But my friends, that is, what we do here on a Sunday morning is, is such a small piece 
of a life of worship, 75 to 90 minutes out of one week. So I got my little calculator out this week. That leaves, my brothers, that leaves, and sisters, 241,830 minutes, approximately, give or take 75 or 90 minutes, that remain in the week. You didn't get that. 75 to 90 minutes is what we worship here on a Sunday morning. That leaves 241,830 minutes, give or take a few, in the rest of the week. What do we do with that? That. (laughs) Sleep. That. That is life worship. For the people of God who are responding to the one who has given himself for them, made them for himself to live in this unimaginable relationship of, of intimacy and love, we got to dial in to the other 241,000 plus minutes every week. Coram Deo. Living like God is with us in every breath because he is. That is what Paul said to the Athenians in, in Acts chapter 17. You know, he, he, he wanted them to understand that the Christian God is the God. As he looked at their pantheon of gods and saw the inscription to the unknown God, Paul took that as an opportunity to say, oh, let me tell you, the God that you worship as unknown is the one who has revealed himself to his people and most specifically through his son. And it is in him that all people on planet earth live and move and have their being. It's interesting that Paul was probably quoting from one of their own poets at the time, but uses that as an image of who God is. And God, the one who gives life and breath and being to all human beings, well, that's, that's, that's true, whether people recognize it or not. But God's people know that. And so it doesn't make any sense for us to think that somehow our God, not that we would ever think it intentionally, that somehow our God is, is content with a rather meager 75 to 90 minute offering of worship during the week. Make sense? Yeah. He's our life. The source of our every breath. He's made us for himself and is very interested in us for himself. So this morning, we're going to start with Psalm 1. Now, do the math. There's 150 of them. So that means that in 149 Sundays, we'll be done with this study on Psalms. (laughs) That gave all of you just a, a, a little bit of a fright, didn't it? It's like, oh my. Good point. I would encourage you, read in the Psalms, 150 of them, approximately five a day. Psalm 119 might take you a little longer. So then you can double up on some of the others or triple up. But, you know, you you could read the entire worship Psalter of Israel in a month, a couple of months as we, uh, we look at the, the remainder of this summer. So why not start with Psalm 1? It's the very first book of the book of worship for Israel. It serves as, as an intro, I think, to the theme 
or a theme anyway, that, that weaves its way through the entire worship book. It, it makes an assumption about God that's critically important, and it also sets up two categories of people, kind of flows out of the assumption. So listen for the assumption about God, and listen for the two categories of people that are contained in Psalm 1 as we stand to read it together. Let's read together. Together, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. My sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord for us. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. All right. So here's your homework for a minute or two with your neighbor. Did you hear the assumption that goes on about God in that psalm? Talk with your neighbor about that. What was the assumption that that you heard? What's, What's the assumption the psalmist is making and... The two categories of people. Did you uh, did you hear those as well? See what your neighbor thinks. Let's talk about it. Who wants to start us off? What's the, what? What do you think is the assumption that is that's woven into this psalm, which is woven into all of the psalms? All right, and we will, we'll pick up that theme more in, in what's referred to sometimes as the, the enthronement or the royal psalms. God is on his throne. Dixie. It is Dixie, isn't it? Yeah, good. I studied the directory this week in fear that I really am losing my mind. Good. The assumption is that God blesses those who walk in his ways. What else? What else? That God is. Okay. God is. There, there is that assumption. There's no effort to prove the existence of God. It's assumed. He is. And, and so then, out of that, there is a couple of categories. There are a couple of categories. Matt referenced those. Of people. Who, what, what, are the, what are the groups? What are the two categories that we see? The wicked and the righteous. The wicked and the righteous. Yeah. The writer, and we don't know who the writer of Psalm 1 is, assumes that God exists, that he is, and and that he is involved in the lives of people, blessing them for obedience, withholding blessing for disobedience, And flowing from those truths 
are two groups of people, those who obey God and those who don't. The Psalms call us to a life of worship that begins with the recognition that God is. And that he is God at the beginning, he is God at the end, and every moment in between, and this is, I think, why the Psalms are so rich, he is not a distant or casual observer. He is is intimately involved. And then, of course, we can jump to the New Testament to the incarnation of Jesus and and the cross and and the suffering. And wow, that ought to just heighten our appreciation for how, how intimately interested he is in humanity. He created us to know him, to enjoy him, to glorify him in knowing and enjoying him. That is worship, and that is why the Psalms are are so valuable. And of course, the beauty, as I've mentioned, of being people who live on this side of the cross is that, that we have the revelation of the character of God revealed to us in Jesus. And we know that Jesus is the high expre- highest expression of, of God's love. And it characterizes the heart of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son. The Psalms weren't written by people who knew that? Yet, despite their lack of, of what we might say is a more complete or thorough revelation of God in Christ, the Psalms are rich in love and adoration of God because of who He had revealed Himself to be in His law. The word worship has at its root the form or the concept of, of, of worth. To worship something is to recognize worth and to give honor because of that worth. The Psalms assume the presence of God in all of life, and they assume the sovereignty of God over all of the events and circumstances of life. Therefore, the psalmists believe that God is, and that he is worthy of worship because of who he is. Charles Spurgeon, you may know that name, 19th century English preacher, He used to love to say that the sovereignty of God is the pillow on which the believer lays their head every night. The sovereignty of God, the pillow upon which the believer lays their head every night. The the sovereignty of God, the love of God, the, the control of God over the affairs of the world and more specifically the affairs of our lives, the events and circumstances, can be, should be, a source of tremendous peace. And so for a few minutes that we have this morning, I, I want to take just a little bit of time and talk about what occurred to me this week is a challenge presented to us by the, the assumption of God's presence in his world, and his sovereignty in his world. That, that God is, and that he is who he says he is. Uh, I think it's a challenge that, that maybe we don't think of quite as often, uh, but it occurred to me that this is one of the things that the Psalms pushes us towards. Let me explain. I would guess that most, if not all of us, would agree with 
the assumption that God is and that he is sovereign over all the events and circumstances of life. Most of us would probably agree with that. We uh, might have some challenges squaring the pain and the hardships of our life with the sovereignty of God, the goodness and love of God as our Father revealed to us in in Christ. That, That challenges us, we know. Whether you choose to believe that he authors the difficulties or you choose to simply believe that he allows them, either of those choices is a statement of belief in his power and ability to do something different. Are you with me? Does that make sense? That that God in his sovereignty is either orchestrating and causing, or God in his sovereignty is either allowing and withholding his ability to change those painful and hard things that result in, in loss and suffering. And so, what do we do? As the people of God committed to the scriptures, we hear the words of Romans 8, and we're reminded that God is at work for good, in the lives of his people, and that nothing separates them from his love. We, we cling to those verses. No matter how hard things may be, we cling to the fact that he loves us and that he is in control. We hear the words of Peter and, and James. They exhort us to, to consider hardships as an opportunity to grow. They exhort us to even rejoice in the hardships. How weird is that? Because God is at work, testing, molding, shaping our character. We have the stories in Scripture, countless stories, of God's people who suffered before us. And finally, even God's Son, the writer of Hebrews, tells us that he had to endure suffering and hardships in order to learn obedience. In his humanity, the son learned obedience to the father through hardships and suffering as he responded to those. So my guess is that that's, that's kind of where we settle. We, we, we know these truths. We, we know the goodness and grace and incredible love of God We know that this world in which we live could be a lot better. And we know that there are plenty of circumstances that cause pain and suffering, but but somehow Scripture puts those two together for us in a way that we cling to. But here's the thought that came to me. When we think about God's sovereignty and the hard stuff of life, we are... We are determined to to push through because of the promises of Scripture. But but what about this? Do we wrestle with the truth that the sovereignty of God points to a God who is worthy to be known, reveals himself to be known, and... gives his people opportunity and strength to speak to his presence in a world that isn't necessarily interested in his presence. Did that make any sense? 
that God who has revealed himself to be who he is to us calls us. The Psalms are filled with the exhortations to sing the praises of God, to speak his greatness, to shout out his glory. You're going to get going here, aren't you, Zach? I can see it in your face. Do we, as his people, bear witness to that in a world that isn't interested in hearing it? The God who is sovereign and who is, it seems to me, if all that stuff that we believe about him is true, he probably deserves to be talked about. You know, it it would be like having, I don't know, a, a, a thousand pound bison in your backyard that you never talk about. Or the proverbial elephant in the living room that psychologists refer to when this is really an issue, but nobody wants to talk about it. That's our God, not the bison or the elephant. Okay? He's big. He's awesome. We believe that He's the creator of all things. Are we talking about Him? Are we, are we, are we promoting His glory? Are we speaking to His, his truth as as the people of God, do we reference Him in all places without apology? I, I, I was struck this week. Romans 1 is that famous, some think of it as infamous, um, passage on the downward spiral of humanity. Where does it start, according to Paul? Paul says that it all began, and there's a sense in which that text is both past and present and ongoing, and that's just the Greek for you. But there is a sense in which Paul is saying that at one point in time, people began to refuse to recognize God as creator and give thanks to him as creator of their life, and that just became a domino effect down through the generations and generations and generations of humanity. Affirming God's rightful place as creator of everything and verbalizing words of thanks and praise. Okay, confession. As much as I didn't like the results of the Super Bowl, I, I loved, I loved... Nick Foles. Unbelievable. That man is my hero. He stood right there on national television, and you know that those reporters and interviewers so desperately wanted to shut that off. But he stood there, and he gave praise to God, and specifically, thanks to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes! Why does that thrill me? And why does that thrill you? Because he spoke out about his God in a place that is generally accepted as not being appropriate. Poop on that. 
We're talking about the one who created the universe. And really, we think that there's no place that he deserves or should be talked about? That's, that's what the Psalms do for us. They remind us of who we're dealing with. Now, don't hear me saying we have to be obnoxious or, or bullying or, uh, that's probably not the right word. Well, yeah, it can be the right word. We don't have to be that. We just have to be a people who have, who have grown so much in our intimacy and our love for God and our wonder at what he has done for us that, that we, just, we just speak of him. That's whole life worship. He, he's just woven into our conversations. It doesn't matter who we're talking to. Sensitively, lovingly, just winsomely. Man. One of the things I love most about Royal Family Kids Camp, and you're probably jealous of all the cool blue shirts I know. We're gonna, <clears throat> you know, there's a way that you can have a cool shirt like this. You know, you sign up and be a part of Royal Family Kids Camp next year, although there is no guarantee that you will have a shirt that is as cool as this, because sometimes headquarters chooses outrageously ridiculous colors. So you might get one of those too. But Royal Family Kids Camp is such an awesome ministry because we are, we are dealing with, with so many of the children who, who, are, who are under the care and protection of Jefferson County for a lot of, of good reasons. And so they say to us, as a Christian camp, knowing full well who we are and what we do, you can't proselytize. And we say, not a problem. We're not forcing anybody to believe what we believe. But we're going to tell them what we believe often. Every day, we're going to sing about it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to memorize his verses together. No, they don't have to memorize those verses. But we're going to bring God into everything that we do in that camp. That, that is what the Psalms call us to do. No apologies. So the Psalms remind us of God's sovereignty. They challenge us to remember that there is no place on earth where the people of God cannot speak of him, no matter the rules and the regulations that we are faced with. Whew. Bringing him up in conversations, no matter with whom and no matter where, is evidence that we truly believe and affirm the truth of our sovereign God, the one who is and the one who deserves all of our life's worship. So then the second consideration and just a couple of comments on this from Psalm 1 this morning are the identification of the, the two categories of, of people that some of you spoke to. There are two paths in life. This is kind of an outrageous claim of, of the psalmist here in Psalm 1, but it flows throughout all of the psalms. There are two paths in life. There's a right one and there's a wrong one. A right way to live and a wrong way to live. And Curiously enough, Psalm 1 doesn't offer a middle ground. Once again, we find ourselves living in a culture where, where people don't always appreciate the idea that their choice of life may be unwise or that, that it could even be a wrong choice. <clears throat> and again, <clears throat> excuse me, I wouldn't be someone who is advocating for us to go around and tell people how wrong they are and how unwise their choices are. But I would advocate for the presence of God and the intimacy of our relationship with him to be so infectious in our lives that it just flows out 
in those conversations and circumstances and raises questions about, well, why do you do that? Or why do you think that? Or why is this important to you? Oh, man, let me, let me tell you about the God I worship. That then gives opportunity for people to do a little self-examination of their own lives. For, for I think, way too long, and, and I know I've used this phrase before, I think oftentimes Christians take God's word and they use it as a weapon. It's not a weapon. It's a revelation of God's character to his people. We don't use it to, to beat anybody over the head. We use it to inform our lives. And we ask the Spirit to, to use that information and to mold us and to shape us into <clears throat> being like his son, our Savior. So when the writer of Psalm 1 uses those terms, counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, the seed of mockers, they're all activities that result from <clears throat> life decisions made by people that did not include God in his proper place as creator and the one for whom they were made. They're a group of people referred to as the psalmist says, wicked. Now, I don't like that word because... We all know people who are wonderful, nice folks, caring and loving, <clears throat> who don't have God in their life, and they don't fit that image, at least they don't fit my image, of what I think of as, as wicked. But the criteria is not set by me, it is set by God. The criteria is set by him by the one who made human beings for himself. So to reject God is to reject a person's purpose for living and then to just reap the natural consequences that flow out of that choice. They ultimately, according to the psalmist, are blown away like the lightweight chaff of the wheat. Ultimately, their life is of no value in the end. His, his inference there is to the fruitfulness of the righteous. We struggle a little bit with that word prosper. All that they do prospers. We immediately think of all the things in our lives <clears throat> that we have done in the name of Jesus that haven't prospered. Or we think of all those, quote, blessings in our lives that we think are from his hand, and those haven't prospered. We need to be cautious with that word, prosper. I think our culture, prosper, often has to do more with dollar signs in the bottom line. And <clears throat> the life that the psalmist has in mind is a life of fruitfulness, is a life that blesses others, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our personal prosperity, is there something going on in our lives and in our spirit as we walk with God that becomes a blessing to others, making Him known through our lives what we do and, and what we say. So the criteria is set by God. But for that choice, that choice is, is also trumped by God in sending his son to die on the cross. The wrong life can become the right life in Christ, and we rejoice in that. And of course, that's, that's complete revelation of God in Christ that, that the psalmist didn't have. For the writer of Psalm 1, the right way to live life was by giving one's attention to what God had revealed in his law. 
And did you notice the description of the person who does that correctly? They meditate on the law of God day and night. That's another way of saying 241,830 minutes of the week. We are conscious of and thinking of and rejoicing in and meditating on and occasionally speaking about the presence of God in our lives. That is, for the psalmist, a fruitful life. And as a result, they're blessed by God. How does that sound to you? Well, could you let your face know that? (laughs) The blessing of God. Now, true confession, if you feel that way, good for you. I have not always felt that way. I went through this time in my life when I would have said, God's blessings or not, you should be living for him just because he is who he is. Now, you have to admit, that's a pretty admirable statement. But it's not terribly biblical. The blessings of God are talked about all through the Scripture, Old and New Testament. The theme of God's blessing for obedience runs through the Psalms. Rewards for obedience and a commitment to, to living for His glory. Do you hear those descriptions in Psalm 1? That person is like a tree planted by streams of water. Well, he doesn't say whether it's a big tree or a little tree. He doesn't even say how long that tree lives. But trees can be a blessing to people, especially in Colorado when you're hiking on a 100-degree day and find the shade of a tree, respite and refreshment, that, that image of being a blessing for the sake of others. I think that's motivation. Let's live for the blessings of God because he'll always give us the best blessings. Problem is, is that when we determine what they're going to be, we don't have permission to do that. You know, I give God an extra 10 bucks, then he's going to multiply that. Well, don't count on it because that may not be his choice for you. But out of the goodness of his heart, And his love for you as his child, he will bless you in ways that are significant and important and special to you. Are we good with that? All right. Okay, time to be done. Let us remember that the greatest blessing, I think, ultimately is to be known by God and loved by God And that's the assumption of this psalm. That's the assumption of so many psalms. And anything else that God chooses to to give us is, is extra. And we rejoice in his goodness and his kindness to us. Ultimately shown to us in the the death and resurrection of his son for our salvation. Amen? Okay, remember. Five psalms a day for 30 days. You've read the whole worship psalter. And maybe a second time too. Okay, worship team. You want to come up and lead us as we close? Let me just read a couple of, uh, just a few lines from a story. Excuse me. That I just think is so cool. Written by 
uh, a woman named Ann Spangler authored the book Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus. I read just a little bit of it. She, uh, she traveled to Israel several times while writing this book. And she describes one of her flights on uh, El Al Airlines, which is the Israeli airline. And often it's the preferred airline of Orthodox Jews when they are traveling. So she writes of being fascinated by, by the ritual and symbolism of the Jewish faith that she observed during that flight. So here's what she says. I tried not to stare as this bearded man, three rows ahead, stood up on the plane and began carefully winding a long strip of leather around his arm. He was observing a daily custom common among Orthodox Jews, small little boxes called tefillin, to uh, attaching both of those to his, his head and his arm. Uh, these boxes, I knew, contained parchment, scrolls inscribed with the ancient command recorded in Deuteronomy 6. You know, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads. And so as this young man did this, I could hear him speaking in Hebrew. And later I learned that he was echoing the words of Hosea 2, 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord, the word of God to his, his people in the prophet Hosea. And then she says, in the seat next to me, there was this teenage girl. She was piously bent over her prayer book. And when she wasn't sleeping through the long flight, she was reading and praying and rocking rhythmically back and forth. And if you've ever seen Orthodox Jews pray, they do that. There's this rocking motion. Later, I asked a white-haired rabbi that I met in Israel about this practice. What's that about, the rocking motion during prayer? I discovered... It's a way of expressing that one's whole self and body and soul is caught up with God. The old rabbi explained that the movement of the body mimics the flickering flame of a candle, calling to mind the saying that the candlestick of God is the soul of a man. I thought, what cool imagery. So caught up in the worship of our God that our, that our bodies are, are just in, in rhythm with with the rhythm of his life flowing into us. May may the Spirit of God ignite in us as we work our way through some of these psalms a deeper, greater, uh, far more passionate love for the God who is and is worthy of all of our life's worship. Amen.